A few weeks after Pastor Mark originally told me about um, the opportunity I would have with you this morning to fill the pulpit for him, a few weeks after that, he came back to me and he invited me to consider and to think about uh, making um, or beginning something of a series. So not that I would teach weeks in a row, but just so that I would have the opportunity, as the opportunity arose to be with you, to teach um, a series, a concept, or a book. And I had already begun some study in the book of Matthew to prepare for the teaching, but I, I stepped back, I went back home, and I prayed about it, and I examined my Bible, and I, I was reflecting a lot. And I feel like the Lord really led me to a place where I made a good decision about the series that I would like to do that Mark had invited me to do. And so I was all excited. Uh, the morning I felt that closure, and I, I was driving to church ready as can be, and I, I came in the door right here off the side, and I walked into the auditorium hoping Mark would be here so I could tell him about my sermon series I was going to do, and sure enough, he was here, and I came up to him, and I walked up to Mark, and Mark, I, 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 I think I want to do the Psalms. I want to be the Psalm guy, you know? And Mark is a straight shooter kind of guy, but I have to tell you that his response to, to my telling him of my sermon series was not what I expected. I could only describe his response back to me as relief. And I didn't know exactly how to interpret that in the moment. And I believe there was actually a physical gesture of some kind on Mark's part, which was something like, like that. And I honestly did not know how to interpret that at all. So I just stared there and kind of looked at him and waited for him to say something. And then he responded back to me in that deep voice he's got. He said, Michael, if I did the Psalms, new hope would kill me. <laughs> because if I did the Psalms, I would do them a verse at a time. And we both laughed a little bit at that moment. And, but then I thought, you know what? He has a point. So it got me curious, so I went ahead and did a little math. So, uh, Pastor, if you're watching with us today here, I'd like to just uh, alert you. Pastor Mark is working us through the book of Romans. The book of Romans has a grand total of 433 verses. We began this series on June 5th, 2016. That is approximately 111 weeks or two years, one month, and three weeks. Um, at that pace, we are 62% through the book of Romans. Now, I did some extrapolations. There are 2,461 <laughs> verses in Psalms. Remember, only 433 in the book of Romans. So at that pace, at that same verse per week rate, it would take Pastor Mark 19 years, 7 months, and 1 week to get us through the book of Romans. So uh, don't worry, I only, I, I don't plan on taking half that long, if you know what I mean. But today, <laughs> hi Mark, today and perhaps the next two times I get to be with you in our Psalm series, what we're going to do, we're going to examine key themes in Psalm 1 and 2. And the reason that that is, is because Psalm 1 and 2 serve as a prologue, because out of them we can learn a lot about the book of Psalms as a whole. Now, after we have made our way through the key themes of Psalm 1 and 2, we won't be going through the book verse by verse because I would prefer to finish my series before the Lord calls me to glory. 
Instead, what we'll be doing is we'll be looking at themes in the book, individual psalms that are representative of the, of the book as a whole. So let's pray, and then we'll get started in the book of Psalms. Dear Lord God, I praise and thank you for this group of people that you have brought together here today. I thank you that this is just evidence of the work of your Holy Spirit, of a church bought by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that there would be no reason for us to have any desire to seek your truth and your word if it were not for you pulling us in that direction, drawing us, prompting us towards you in your grace. So God, I pray for everyone here that we could receive what you would have us learn. And Lord, for myself, that I would be clear and that, that in, in every way that your goodness, your graciousness would be interpreted through the words of your, of, of your word. I pray this, Jesus, in your name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So why the Psalms? Well, for me, church, um, sometimes when I'm in the Bible, my mind kind of takes over. It kind of takes over and inhibits that experience somehow. I'm not proud of it. But sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, everything I read can become something new to study. Or maybe I read a, a, a verse that connects to a worship song that we're doing here. And my, my overactive brain just races off. And, and, or and there is a verse that I want to teach on someday. Or there's a concept I would love to, to, to take to the kids on Sunday night at our youth group. And I feel like my overactive brain, I, I lose it in there. And maybe you can really, I don't know that, but something drowns out what I know can be a genuine, real, spiritual connection and experience with a living God. Maybe it's hardness of heart or pride or laziness. I, I, it's fine. You can label me all of those things sometimes for sure. But when, I, when that's happening, when I'm in the Bible and, and it's merely words or a historical puzzle or some intellectual exercise, I have to remind myself, God is not having a problem. <laughs> I am. I'm having the problem. God's word is still at work. Look at this verse from Hebrews 4. It's a verse that we put up often here at New Hope Church for good reason. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why Psalms? For me, church, God has used his book of Psalms so frequently to break through that staleness, to break through that um, lack of touch that I get sometimes when I'm in the Bible. Here are a couple of my favorite. Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 43. Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Bring me to your dwelling place, your holy mountain. Now you will notice that I recited to you Psalm 43 differently than what you saw it up there on the screen. And the reason that is, is I don't know. It's because Psalm 43.3 has been with me for so long, I don't remember where I first learned it. Maybe when I was a kid in Bible study, it was a translation that I couldn't find. Um, I don't know. But I have prayed that many, many times. I wore this bracelet. My wife got it 
uh, for me as a gift. And on it, it says Psalm 16, verse 11. That's because that is one of my absolutely favorite verses in the Bible, and it goes like this. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 individual psalms. One is a psalm, the collection is the book of Psalms. In your Bible, if you were to go to, into the book of Psalms now, what you would see is you would see um, in every translation that you have, a psalm is a chapter. So the first psalm is chapter one. The third psalm is chapter three and so on. Now, the collection of them was written over a long period of time. Um, uh, scholars and historians believe maybe as up to a, a time frame of a thousand years from when the very first psalm was written and the last one was written. And the last psalm was written somewhere about 580 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And speaking of Jesus Christ's church, Jesus knew the psalms. Jesus quoted the psalms in his earthly ministry, he quoted the Psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. So the book of Psalms was on the lips, on the mind of our Savior. A thousand years putting it together. God took his time inspiring this book. Would you not agree? Well, let's look at it. Let's look at Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll go ahead and break that open in your Bible if you like. Otherwise, it'll be right on the screen here for you. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, I want to draw attention to this concept of the law, because for clarification, this is important. As Christian people, we have to understand that the law, in some senses, in some ways of understanding it, is what Christ has freed us from. So in that first way, what has Christ has freed us from is this. If you think about the law, think about Old Testament, think about the commands that God gave his people. So you can think about uh, the Ten Commandments, think about the temple, you think about ritual sacrifice. Now, had Christ not freed us from that type of law, you would have all brought little animals with you here this morning, and there would have been an author up here, and you would have brought them to me. Okay, you get the idea. The second way as Christians that we understand the law to mean is a more broader context, more broadly meant to be this. Any effort that we make to be good enough for God, which we can't do. We can't do that. Um, and that's, that's a right way to interpret the idea of the law. Um, Jesus Christ has freed us from the weight of the expectation of trying to live up to God's holy standard, amen? This is why Christian people love Jesus so much. We, we know how this works. If you have a job, if you do poorly and don't show up, you're going to get fired. If you ignore your marriage, it might fall apart. If you go speeding too fast on the highway, you might get a ticket. There are expectations. There are demands. We understand this. We look at a holy, righteous, magnificent, eternal God and go, uh-oh, 
I'm not going to be able to meet that. I can't meet that expectation. But God, in his grace and his love, he comes to us and says, hey, um, I know that you are not going to be able to meet my standard. You are not going to meet my expectations. I would like to introduce you to my son, Jesus. Jesus here met every righteous standard, every word he ever said or spoke, everything he ever did was perfect in my eyes. He met that standard. And on top of that, he died the punishment that would have been for you because you can't. Now, if you give honor and glory to him, we're good. Yeah, I'm in on that one. What do I got to do? I'm going to write some songs. Yeah, brother, let it rip. That's good news. That's the gospel. However, when, when we approach the book of Psalms, we need to expand our understanding when we use the word law because I, I don't want us to misinterpret what we're going for. The Hebrew word of, for in the text of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, when you see the word law, it is a familiar one if you've been in church, if you grew up in church, you've heard this word before. The word is Torah. And in this context, what the blessed man is delighting in is in the general instruction or the direction that God is sending him in, the general law. I may be stating, overstating the obvious here at church, but I really feel like I need to make this point before we move on, and that's this. The freedom Christ has earned for us is not freedom from the pursuit of or passion for God's word specifically his instruction and his direction. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 4. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, Do you eat? How often? How much? (laughs) You don't have to answer that. That's awkward. What Jesus is saying here, church, is that you won't live. You won't live if all you're living on is material food. You won't make it. The nuance of meaning of the word live in Matthew chapter 4, just so long you're you're tempted to interpret it some sort of metaphorical way. The concept of living, um, uh, not living on the bread alone, it's associated with the idea of breathing. You're not going to live very long if you don't breathe. And we need the word of God. We need his instruction. We need his direction. Um, That is why the use of the word Torah in Psalms is so important here. I want to put Psalm 1 back up on the screen. I want to draw your attention to the very top of the book, okay? We're talking about Torah, the law of God, the instruction, the general direction he has for our life. What right before Psalm 1, what does it say there? Psalm 1, book 1. That's right, because you see the Psalms are divided into five volumes. The Psalms are divided into five volumes or five books. Now, let me put this plainly for you. When we read about the blessed delighting in the Torah of God in a book that is the first of five, we are delighting in the Torah in a book that is the first of five. Now, if some of you who study Old Testament 
might be starting to draw some connections in your mind. That is because that is exactly right. The Torah is a word that God's people use to describe the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they called that the Torah. And this is highly revered. God's people highly revered those first five books, believed to be written by Moses himself, inspired, holy, sacred. And that is the connection here. That is the picture. That is the poetic. Don't miss this. Because beyond this verse's immediate context, um, this is laying a foundation for the entire book. And that is this. These psalms are the law of God. That's what they are. They are the instruction of God. There are other books that we call Torah for sure. But don't make any mistakes. God's instruction, his direction resides right here. So we stand at the front gate of the book of Psalms and there's a big banner over the top of it and it's reading and it's telling us this. The Psalms are meant to be read as instruction and direction from God. Don't, don't just admire them for their poetic or historical worth. Heed them. These are the words that have proceeded from the mouth of God that we need to live. John Piper says it like this. When we read the Psalms, we are meant to learn things about God and about human nature and about how life is to be lived. Some poetry makes no claim to instruct the mind. Psalms do. They are meant to be instructive about God and man and life. We will take our instruction from these. Allow me to illustrate this point for you and then we'll move on. Um, a few days ago, I was uh, walking into my kitchen and I had something of a parent fail. Does anybody ever have a parent fail where you do or say or something and it's just, brother, I feel you. And so I had a little parent fail and I'll tell you why. Because I had walked into the kitchen and I had walked into a scene that was already in progress. The crime was being committed in, in the moment and I kind of walked in as it was all going down. And what I saw was I saw my 10-year-old son, he was eating lunch at the table and my six-year-old son was standing right next to him and was being annoying. Like only children can. And he's being annoying. And then what I saw is my older son, who is eating his lunch, just kind of get frustrated. Get away. Or I don't know what it is. And he, he might have thrown an elbow. He might have thrown an elbow. And there was some action went down. And now I, um, I step in as dad. And I was going to, I turned my attention to my 10-year-old son. And I was about to kind of, I want to give some instruction to him. But my wife was there. And she had been witness to a broader context of what was going on. So she interrupted me and paused and said, hey, Michael, before you do that, you know, I want you to know that Joshua, sitting at the table, had kindly, politely, and repeatedly asked his younger brother to stop annoying him, okay? And I was like, oh, interesting. And so what I saw is Joshua blow up. So I let that one slide because you can't win them all. And so I turned around and I, I went to my six-year-old son. And what I did is I, I took my older boy and I pulled him out of his lunch chair. And I sat there as if I was Judah. 
my younger one. And I explained to him a very important lesson about love that God wants us all to know, which is that we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. And so my younger son, if you're eating lunch, would you want your older brother standing next to you, bumping your elbow, snapping his fingers, pinching, kicking you in the shins? Would you want to eat lunch under those circumstances? And Judah said, you know, no, no, dad, no. I said, okay, well, that's what God means. We are supposed to love people the way that we would want to be loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then my little guy, Judah, said one of the neatest things. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. I learned that at church. And I was like, way to go, children's ministry, folks here at New Hope Church. However, in that moment, I couldn't help but take the opportunity to help expand my son's thinking, to help him think a little further down the trail here. And when he looked at me and said, love your neighbor as yourself, I learned that at church. I just paused. I looked right back at him and I said, I'm not so sure you did. And he got all confused and I said, well, son, you clearly just didn't do that. You did not love your neighbor as yourself. I said, you might have heard those things. You might even understand those things. But what we haven't learned something until we can practice it, until it becomes a part of who we are. And I, I think that is a relevant lesson for all of us, all of us. And this is how I summarize um, the point that Christ made in Matthew 4. The ultimate measure by which we need to evaluate the work God's word is doing in our lives isn't on how well it gets in, but how well it comes out of us. This is what the Apostle John is telling us in 2 John chapter 1, verse 6. Walk according to his commandments. Walk. That's what you do. That's how you behave. That's the direction your life is going, according to the instruction and commandments of God. Instruction and direction. That's what these psalms are. Now, what exactly, specifically, let's get a little bit more detailed as into the type of instruction, the type of direction that we have here. Now, I'm, I'll tell you right now, right off the bat, the book of Psalms, as we've clearly stated earlier, is a big book. So there is a lot of instruction in these books, 2,461 verses worth. Now, what I'd like to do for you today is offer you something of a whole book perspective to answer that question about what type of instruction, what type of direction. And this is the point at which the worship pastor in me gets excited. First things first, what is a psalm? Here is the Hebrew word for psalm. It's this. Properly, instrumental music. By implication, a poem set to notes. A song accompanied by musical instruments. The psalms are songs. Yeah, their instructions, their direction. This is the bedrock truth. This is the reverent word of God we're talking about here, but delivered to us in song form. So don't be thinking like dizzy, you know, pixie dust kind of stuff, all right? When we say the word song, I know we tend to think more lightly. 
What I'm trying to do for you is to get you to remember and think about these psalms as being, having the weight of the word of the truth of God, but they come to us in a song format. Why? Now, look, we don't know what the music sounded like when these songs were written. That's not the point. This is not a music history lesson. This is about why music. Why is God giving us his direction and instruction and setting it to music? It's because of what music does. Music does what the Psalms do. God is going to do for you in your life what music does. And what is that? It connects ideas with our affections, emotions, and experiences. In Psalms, our instruction and direction for God comes to us in poetic forms that connect God's instructions with our affections and emotions and experiences. This is why commands, God commands us to frequently sing. He's always telling us to sing. All told, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing with 50 direct commands to sing. We don't say lullabies. We sing them. We say the Pledge of Allegiance, but we sing our national anthem. My son, sitting in the front pew here, just spent a week in northern Michigan. He has worked hard, and he was able to be an instructor at, an, at the Air Force uh, Civil Air Patrol's uh, cadet search and rescue camp. So he was off in the woods with a handful of young men and women, and they were learning all it takes to be search and rescue. By the way, I have no idea where you get that from. I'm more indoorsy. I'm not much of a camper kind of guy. But look, what, what they teach those instructors to do, when their cadets are getting worn out, worn down, when their muscles are starting to fatigue, when their minds start to wonder, when they're engaged in activity that's repetitious and difficult and it starts to break down and the enthusiasm wanes and people are ready to give up, do you know what they do to encourage and to teach their cadets to lift them up, to give them strength? to keep them moving. Those of you with military experience may know where I'm going with this, but they teach them songs. They teach them songs they call Jodies, which is a weird name, but we're not going to go into that. Singing is this beautiful thing God has given us that works to draw us in, lift us up. When our heart is joyful and even when it's reluctant. I want to ask you to come with me on a minor detour. I thought a lot about this and ultimately decided I'm going to spend just a few minutes on a little detour about a reluctant heart in worship. Singing draws us in both when we have a joyful and a reluctant heart. I want to point this out to you about the reluctant heart. First, we've all been there. I know. We don't walk in here every Sunday sitting down and skipping at the same time. Sometimes we're reluctant. As a matter of fact, if you want to come to me and say something like, every minute of every day is a joyful song to sing, not buying that. No, that's not true. However, what I find fascinating is this. The very thing that we are reluctant to do, singing, is the very thing that can lift us up 
into a desire, into a place of genuine praise. Look at Ephesians chapter five. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart. Now, I don't want to get too far into this verse. All I want you to agree with me here is this, is that we can at least agree on this. In this verse, singing and making melody with your heart are connected. Would you at least agree with me on that? So sometimes, church, I just have to open up my face and join the choir for the blessing of a melody in my heart to be felt. I want to read you a quote on the connection between emotion and worship. Uh, a quote from Ravi Zacharias. He's an author and speaker I like to listen to frequently. If that name is unfamiliar with you, I encourage you to pour a cup of coffee and just YouTube search his name and enjoy the journey that you will go down. Um, but here is what Ravi Zacharias has to say between the connection between emotion and worship. You cannot worship without emotion. I didn't say emotionalism. I said emotion because there is that bond of love. There is that relationship of love. And, and why, when the music is sung, when the hymns are sung and the choruses are sung, do we get stirred within us? It is because the voice is giving vent not just to an idea, but to an emotion. I have loved you. You cannot worship him without emotion. If we are absorbing these psalms as mere biblical calculus, we're missing it. We are missing the beautiful instruction and direction. We are missing the point. The instruction and direction is in emotion, affection, and experience. That's the point of the instruction and the direction to instruct us, to direct us. Do you have it within you to believe that God is interested in helping walk you through your experiences in life? I think so. Do you experience emotions that are foreign to God that he doesn't understand? No. Do you have affections that confuse him? Absolutely not. I really want to try and make this practical for you before we walk out of here. How the instructions and directions that God gives us in his psalms connect to our experiences and emotions in life. Um, last week, if you were here, I shared a brief story about uh, my wife's grandfather who passed away this last year, and we did his funeral recently a couple weeks ago in Wisconsin. I had learned after Grandpa's death that he wanted Psalm 23 sung at his funeral because it was his favorite psalm. And so if you were here last week, I shared that with you. I sung the song that we did for, for Grandpa. But, but recently, I started to begin to wonder why Psalm 23 might have been his favorite psalm. Why? We'd never get a chance to talk about that. Maybe we will someday in heaven. I don't, I don't know. But I just speculate a little bit. Why Psalm 23? You see, Grandpa served in World War II. Like, he was there. He was on the front lines. And he tells a story of a day 
where a, a fierce firefight broke out. He talked about prior to the battle climbing up a tree or a church tower and he could see the enemy, the Germans washing their clothes and their weapons the morning before the battle. And the battle was fierce, small arms fire, mortar, rockets. It was just a bad, bad day. And his lieutenant lost his life right in front of him. And as the battle started to wind down, and, uh, he felt that maybe he had an opportunity. He found some safety in a foxhole, and the battle began to subside, and he grabbed his breath, and he was thirsty. So he thought he could just quick grab a drink before he had to go on and do whatever he had to do next. And he nestled into that foxhole. He sat down, and he grabbed, he pulled out his canteen, and it was empty because there was a bullet hole in it right through it. And I thought of the words of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God is directing us. He's instructing us and he's saying to us in his book of Psalms, here, here are the words you are going to need. When you answer a phone call from your husband's phone and on the other line is an incoherent woman describing a terrible accident, and you yourself have to hang up that phone and pick up and call your older brother because you know that he can get to the hospital before you can. You are going to need to know. You are going to need these words. When your heart breaks in two, God is saying, here, I, I know your sorrow. Psalm 38, 17, oh Lord, for I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. When you have experienced grief and sadness and loss, the likes of which you are not sure you could ever come out of, and you endure that, and then God in his rich, rich mercy brings you through and into a new season of life, maybe even to a season of joy, what God is saying to us is this, say this, Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. Or when the scan is clear and the cancer is gone, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. The Lord is instructing and directing you on how to live on how to say, on how to praise. So when life brings you the, the sweetest surprises, you can't wipe the smile off of your face. God is saying, here, sing these back to me. When you're satisfied or comforted or happy, when you're confused or lost or broken, here, you're gonna need this. Here's my instruction. Here's my direction for how I want you to walk through these experiences in your life. Here is how you bring glory to me in your hurt, in your joy, and in your pain and delight and grief. When God's Holy Spirit descends into like the deepest little corner of your soul and then whispers, 
you're forgiven. Jesus died for you. You, Lord, are good. You are ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. How deeply, how deeply does God love and care for us that these, his promises to deliver, to sustain, to forgive, they're given to us in the language we need to best experience them. Wow. You see, that is why from the earliest of times, the Psalms has been the church's manual for prayer and praise and public worship. You know, may it be uh, for you and I too, New Hope. What a precious gift. The Psalms, this is deep doctrine. It's deep instruction and direction from God reflecting and pouring out emotion that gives us reason just as it has for thousands of years, generation after generation of God's people to take delight in immersing ourselves in the God and Savior that these words glorify. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Let's sing. You want to sing? Stand up with me. Let's finish. Let's finish with a song.